Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back to the never-ending season three of the podcast, and welcome to the new year and the new decade. It's January 2020 currently. It's very exciting to be uh, still doing this show in the new year. This is the first episode of 2020. Thanks for joining me as we explore the depths of the musical universe. As always, I really enjoy hearing from all you folks far and wide, so feel free to drop me a line anytime at Steve at thehenhousestudio.com. Now, on to this month's episode, uh, Malcolm Byrne. And uh, it's very exciting to have Malcolm on the episode. He's another one of these people that is um, just like custom made for, uh, for this show for many reasons. Um, Malcolm is a fellow Canadian of mine and uh, he's had an incredible career, very re- remarkable as a musician and a producer and an engineer. So that's kind of why I consider him a perfect fit for the show. He's been deeply involved in some of the most important records to me in my um, listening history and also in my learning um, about records and how to make records and being inspired by records. He's right up there. Um, all albums that had a lasting impact on me. And they all these records that he was involved in were all coming out at a time when I was just getting into playing and recording music and we spent me and the people that I was working with spent a lot of time analyzing these records and getting really deeply into them um it was you know a time in my life when I would get into a a record and it would become my favorite and I would listen to nothing but that for you know like a thousand times in a row I don't really do that anymore but I did it back then and Malcolm had his mitts on so many of 
those records that I held so uh, much in high regard, such as Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy album, Daniel Lac- Lenoir's Acadie, and For the Beauty of Winona. Um, I think others by Lanois too, but those were the those were the two that I, I felt most connected to. Um, Living with the Law by Chris Whitley, Yellow Moon by the Neville Brothers, um, Wrecking Ball by Emmylou Harris was a huge one for me and my pals, my cohorts in learning music, and uh, and also by Emmylou, the one that came right after that. I think was it right after that? I think so. Uh, Red Dirt Girl, Malcolm. Daniel Lenoir and Mark Howard were a force to be reckoned with as uh, a, a team, and they seemed to move through the musical landscape, and they worked with all these great artists in sort of mystical locations, from mansions in New Orleans to classic studios in Nashville, and, and sometimes even just ordinary houses. And the three of them developed a collaborative way of working together on the playing, producing, and engineering, and mixing on what I consider to be some of the greatest sounding records of that time. So uh, I got in touch with Malcolm and he was happy to join me on the show to talk about some of his early experiences, getting into music, um, how he got into playing piano and getting into into bands around Ontario as a kid, uh, eventually to how dating Daniel Lanois' sister Jocelyn led to, led to him working with Daniel Lanois and their incredible run after that. Malcolm has had a really consistent approach and philosophy to recording music that I really dig and he's kind of stuck to it since day one and it was really fascinating to get to talk to him about all these sessions and his way of working. This episode will be broken up into two parts because of its length and part two will be available one week from today. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get it dumped onto your phone one week from today. And while we're talking about that, before we get going, just a reminder to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please leave a review, preferably a nice one, and a comment if you feel so inspired over at Apple Podcasts. That really helps out. And if you would like to support the show financially, you can do that with either a one-time donation through the website or a monthly contribution through Patreon, or you can order one of our zesty new t-shirts. And all of that can be done through my website, which is at www.thehenhousestudio.com. That's thehenhousestudio.com. Hit the podcast page, and that's where all the info is. And you can also, right there, get access to all the past um, episodes of the show as well. So go and check out thehenhousestudio.com, and we'll get you set up. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Since there are so many aspects of what you do that are intriguing to me, both as a player and a behind-the-scenes guy mixing and engineering, which is something that I do as well, um, I would love to hear maybe just some of your initial thoughts about how you see yourself in that 
spectrum, um, whether you've, you've thought of yourself more as a player over the years or as, as, a, as an engineer and whether that's shifted over the, over the course of your career as well. Sure. Um, well, I mean, in, in the answer to that question is actually pretty, pretty straightforward for me anyway. Um, I was actually just telling someone the other day about um, a tech friend of mine, he, you know, he, he, he repairs, you know, he's like a studio uh, tech guy. Uh, Chip Speak is his name. And he has had it. He was working on an ARP, an old ARP 2600 modular <laughs> synthesizer. Nice. Yeah. And, and I was telling, you know, some, it's probably made in about 1972 or something like that. And I was telling him that when I was about 14 years old, uh, in my town up in Deep River uh, in Ontario, there was one of these kind of traveling science fairs where they had, you know, just for the kids, you know, set up in the auditorium. And the the, the, the thing that immediately drew my attention was they had an ARP Odyssey, which was a sort of a smaller model of the ARP 2600, sort of more of a roadworthy yeah. kind of thing. And I, and I, and I just... I went over to the thing and I started fiddling around with the, you know, the thing and just making sounds. And I just, it was like, um, I'd, I'd gone into a new universe, you know, I'd sort of entered a, a universe. And I was like, this is what I want. You know, this, this it instantly defined what I was interested in wow. <laughs> for probably for the rest of my life in the sense of, you know, I mean, I'd already been studying music classically. You know, I was in the Royal Conservatory of, of Music, you know, studying and so forth. But as a as a uh, pianist, or the, what was that's what yeah, you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know, I started very young. You know, probably about six or seven years old, studying mm -hmm. classical music, and I loved that. But you know, like like many teenagers, I'd heard you know, sort of rock records and particularly sort of groups like Pink Floyd where, you know, sound was as much a part of it as, as the songs, you know, just right. the sound of the music and the various things. So it, it sort of instantly opened my eyes and my ears to somewhere where I wanted to go. And I just started bothering my dad. Like, dad, I want a synthesizer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he said, well, they're very expensive and, if you're going to buy something, you're going to have to, you know, work. And yeah. you know, he did a very kind thing. He said, if you if you can work part time and earn, say, a thousand dollars, I'll come up with another thousand dollars, and we'll we'll buy something. So so that's what we did. And very and, nice, and nice I, dad. And then I just, he, he, I love him. He's still around. Um, and uh, and. Uh, and then I had like a little tape machine and I just started making sounds and recording them. And it was a completely sort of organic process. I, you know, just, just, um, and I never separated sort of sound creation from studio work. So whether I was playing live music, which I eventually started doing or in the studio for me, it was all just a, a very broad artistic palette. And, right. and so I still, to this day, I still essentially sort of think that way that the recording process is, is sort of a, a, a very broad painting paint palette where you're just creating sound and, and you know, and, and then I've, of course, I ended up expanding that much further in the, in the sense of learning how to, for example, in, in the studio, uh, became very interested in, in being able to capture, you know, live performances. Mm -hmm. 
you know, that, that being a part of the process as well, which um, to, to this day, that's something I still specialize in, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, I can do the, the sort of the uh, paint by numbers thing where you just sort of sit down and create a piece of music just using step-by-step process. But to be honest with you, there's nothing more exciting than combining the experience of being a live performer with the studio and then using it as a way of painting that. Like a, thing. Like a launching I hope, pad. I hope I'm making yeah, I, I hope that sort of makes any kind of sense. That totally makes sense. I, I can totally relate to that as well, because a lot of the stuff that I do is from a, at least derived initially from a live performance. And um, uh, I, I love that you've sort of had a one overarching uh, philosophy that sort of carried you through from, from childhood up until now that that uh, you're still striving for essentially the same thing, although the, I'm sure the details have changed and and some of the finer points have changed. But to have such a such a a cool goal from early on that you've stuck with is really interesting to me. Yeah, and it's it's you know I mean I I know from having conversations with with other people um, <clears throat> that, that that's I've I've had other people in my world sort of share that experience, whether it be hearing a particular record for the first time or, or, or going into a studio for the first time or anything like that. But, yeah. you know, I, I think it's, it's something that I, I just sort of inherently figured I was just meant to do. I think <laughs> I so. I think, I think you're I right. Because I, didn't know to, I, didn't, I didn't know how to do anything else. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of us default into this life. That's that's true. Um, uh, do you do you recall like you mentioned Pink Floyd as being something that you found really interesting because of the sonic characteristics? Um, do you recall a few other things that you would sort of pigeonhole as landmark recordings for you that really either got you into a certain kind of music or got you into recording or like really inspired you to go after something in your in your life? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, probably, you know, everyone, not everyone, but many people have, have a few albums that, that sort of got them somewhere. And I'll, I'll be awfully honest and candid and say that the, the Beatles white album in particular was a record that, that yeah. um, was, was interesting to me because, you know, they were obviously sort of experimenting quite a bit on that on that record, they were no longer just trying to make sort of pop songs and I'll say you know, they'd sort of already done that. So there was a lot of experimentation going on sonically on that record, which I, I've always, you know, felt had some impact on me. I, I sort of grew up in the era of FM radio when it was yep. really sort of starting to, to happen back in the mid to late seventies. And so I used to, put on this radio station uh, it was a, based out of Montreal it's called Shome FM and and they would play like a whole album you know the guy would just the man or the woman the DJ whoever it was male or female would just put on like a side yeah and they spoke in French of course so I was like you know didn't fully understand what they're saying but it was like ici le le the, the premier album de la groupe Genesis and you know they play the whole <laughs> record and you know, just, just drop the needle and stay on the way yeah, you sort of put on your headphones and trip out and listen to the music, <laughs> and, and that that was always something 
had an impact on me. But other than that, there was two other records that stood out. One of them was um, the Velvet Underground album called Loaded. Uh, yeah. It's one of the, I think it was the last record that Lurie was involved in the band on. I think so. And and there was something about that record sonically that that sort of got me. And then and and and, and partly because of the song, you know, that was a great combination of of pretty great songs. I mean, you know, nobody can argue with Sweet Jane and you know stuff like that uh, as, as songs go. But the way the sound of the record was kind of attracted me to what I envisioned was going on in New York at that time, you know? Right. Um, yeah. It's interesting. I think when, when, uh, and this is something that you've done too, that I really want to get into is like where, where albums conjure up a place and a time in a really distinct way, whether it's accurate or not, it's sort of like has something in your brain that, that, as you say, like made you feel about a certain era of New York. And I feel that I feel that about a lot of the records that you were involved in. And, you know, uh, part of that is, is the locations that you worked in, but also the, the time that I was at in my life and the importance to me of those records. So I think, I think think it's sort of a similar thing. I I think it's been said, and I would agree with the saying that albums, I mean, we're getting a little off the track with the question there, but, but I'll say it while it's on my mind is albums to me are, you know, people. Some people go into an, an album project or a recording situation like they're, they're 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 sort of almost like creating their their um you know their their epitaph or something like this. It's yeah. Like written in time, you know, like this is my landmark. You know, this is like. Whereas to me, no matter what, what happens, an album a recording is going to be a snapshot, and you could have done the record six months per earlier or six months later, but for whatever reason, there's things going on at that moment that are going to define where your head's at, what your interests are, what you're excited about, you know, whether it's like some other music that you've been listening to or something that's going on in the world or, or some new instrument that you just came across and you want to try it out or some these days, you know, some new program or some new loop that you just found. You know what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, totally. there's always going to be, you know, I mean, I remember going through a phase where I was just absolutely enthusiastic about the idea of, of making a record on one microphone. So mm-hmm. I did, you know, and, and that it was this record by this group called The Bowmans. And I just said, this is how we're going to do it. We're just going to put one microphone that's got a figure eight pattern. And there were two singers and one of them played acoustic guitar and they both sang together and I just put them in the middle of this yeah, cool. room in my house and, and made the record like that, you know. The other album that really stood out in my mind, which is completely different than everything else I'd been doing, was I had also gotten into, you know, the blues, mm-hmm. and I and I went out and bought what I considered were some blues records. And the one album that really stood out for me was this album by a guy called Lightning Sam Hopkins, who's oh, a yeah. blues player from being in Texas. But he had, I, I guess, he at one point he was signed to some jazz label or something and or capital. I can't remember who it was. I think he was on impulse they, for a little while. Weirdly. Well, they, they sent, they sent him up to New York, not New York to New Jersey, as it turns out to make an album with this guy who I just love his recordings. This guy, Rudy, Rudy Van Gelder. Yeah. You know, and Ru- Rudy Van Gelder was more noted for making records with people like John Coltrane and things like that. But there was, again, there was something about the sound 
of that record, like you felt like you were in the room with those people, yeah. <laughs> you know, like you, you know, you were just in space and that was Rudy Van Gelder's genius was, was that kind of ability to, to create that sonic picture, you know, using mic placement. Everybody was clearly seemed to be all in the same room playing together. I'm sure they were, yeah. Rather, rather different than, than say the, the opposite end of the thing where you, think about a band like Pink Floyd where you can tell everything was done sort of practically, you know, separately and yeah. put together in a different way. And so, you know, there's a very broad spectrum there. And it's interesting. What's kind of funny about the record is it sounds like he was just sort of, they sort of got a rhythm section together up there, like a, a, a you know, jazz drummer and, a, and an upright bass. But because of the fact that Lightning was very, you know, he'd play by himself. So he didn't care whether the bar had, totally. it could be an 11 bar blues. <laughs> yeah. So you followed you by a 13 bar blues. You hear the musicians sort of trying to follow and make the changes, you know, and they're, they're sort of getting it. They're not quite getting it. It's, it's a really interesting. It's, album it's that's a tough thing for those slick New York guys to wrap their head around a little lightning Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's particularly notable on a song. It's called "Don't Don't Embarrass Me, Baby." Uh-huh. The lyrics: "Don't embarrass me, baby. Uh, don't embarrass me no more. Don't embarrass me, baby. Don't embarrass me no more. If you embarrass me one more time, I'm gonna come down and shoot you with my forty-four. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing subtle about that message. <laughs> that's um, that's very enlightening that you were um, interested in some of the the prog um, and and super produced stuff and then the more raw end of the spectrum as well. Well, yeah. I mean, the other album that I heard when I was about 16 or 17 that just flipped me out was raw power by Iggy pop. I was like, oh, yeah. you know, it was so, it was so completely not what anyone was listening to, you know, in my town at that time, they were like, what the hell is this? Fucking music? Yeah. <laughs> this is the future right here. <laughs> so where did you, where did you grow up? What part of Ontario? I'm, I'm Canadian as well. So we also have that in common. Um, but uh, yeah, were you in Toronto or were you somewhere else? I, well, I grew up in um, a town uh, in Ontario, about literally sort of halfway between Ottawa and North Bay on Highway 17 called Deep River. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's a tiny, tiny little village. Well, it's a town, but, you know, it's it's sort of there. It's, ostensibly, it's there because of the local um, Atomic Energy of Canada facilities at Chalk River. Oh. It's sort of originally set up as a place, as a residence for all the scientists and technicians and so forth that worked on the... Uh, at the facility and my father was actually involved and in, you know he worked on what was known as the tandem accelerator doing like nuclear research experimentation and so forth so it was wow. kind of an interesting environment where you know we were sort of the, the town folks all trying to pretend that we were super cultural <laughs> outside of the town everybody's listening to you know good old country music and yeah. sort of this interesting interaction of cultures you know so did you have friends like, like kids like other kids around the area that were into music too or were you sort of flying solo in your in your musical pursuits well no i mean probably like many small towns anywhere you want to go really especially you know canada there's always going to be like 
the cool guys, the, the cool people that are into music. And there was this one little clique of guys that were about a year, some of them were a year or so older than me. And they were like, they had this band, the band was called Sin. <laughs> you know, they would always nice. play in high school things yeah. where they play at the local uh, uh, skating rink or whatever. And to be part of that crowd was like to be accepted right. on some level. So, so because I played, you know, I was sort of toiling away on my own in my house playing music. And I thought, well, I want to get into a band. And so I had this keyboard that my father had helped me to buy. And I, I, I said, Hey guys, like maybe you want a keyboard player in your group. And they were like, well, you know, we need to hear you play. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they came over to my house. And at that time I, I hadn't yet learned how to jam. Right. Um, cause I was so strictly formal and classical, classical guy. music. Yeah. And, and, and when they said, well, okay, let's jam. I was really, I just didn't know what to do. And I was so disappointed. They, they sort of went, Oh, well, I don't think you're <laughs> going to be in our band. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh my God, like I can't, I'm not going to, my dreams are being shattered here. I took it so seriously. So, yeah. so one day I, I had this friend of mine, Pete Slander, and, and he used to just, we called him harmonica Pete. And, and he would just, he always had a harmonica on him and he would just sit down for hanging out and he'd start stomping his foot and playing like blues harmonica. Mm -hmm. You know, just but just on his own, right? So one day I said to him, I was like, Pete, can you show me how to jam? He goes, Oh man, it's easy. Come on. So he came <laughs> over to my house, and he just said, Look, I'm just going to do like this on the piano, and this is all you got to do is just like dun dun through the twelve bars right yeah and he says when you get to the end of it just start it again <laughs> and he said just do that keep doing that and i'll just jam over top of you and so i start doing that and he starts playing his harmonica sounds like a great you know, deal for him playing like one well yeah <laughs> i mean you can only play in one or two keys i think his harmonica was in c so yeah. i had to play blues and c at first and then he said well now just do you know do that what you're doing, but just do it on the left hand, but on the right hand, just play, you know, these pentatonic scales, you know, this blues scale, he showed me a blues scale. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh wow! <laughs> Again, it was in one, another one of these like eureka moments where yep. suddenly a door opens and you're like endless possibilities abound, you know? Right. Right. And I, I had this idea to combine my classical training, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of slightly more complex structures with this idea of blues and yep. of course i sort of arrived at a place where a lot of english rock musicians had arrived at you know a number of years earlier right i mean that's what rock and roll is all about sort of but you know the english always take something and do it a bit differently so you know you end up with things like progressive rock or yeah things like that you see so that was a ground life in Northern Ontario. And and were, did you have a period where you got really into like blues pianists, like Otis Spann and people like that? Or were, were you not really super traditional about your interest in blues? Not really. I never, I never got too specific on that level. I okay. mean, I just, I just, you know, I always would occasionally buy blues records. And one of the records that actually had a profound impact on me that I found in sort of one of these dollar bin kind of situations was a record 
called Women's Blues, and it was an album that came on a, on some sort of more arch- archival label, mm-hmm. and it was it, <clears throat> on the back of the liner notes that explained how blue, you know, women back in the in the day, like in the old days, it was actually women that played. I'm talking back like down south. You know, it was the women that played in the churches, mm-hmm. right? Because they, you know, they'd always need a piano player to, to play the hymns and stuff. Sure. And so, and and then of course the women would play in the church. So they, you know, in the in the gospel environment, you know, it was a little more rambunctious than the mm-hmm. sort of church of England. Like we are not worthy, Jesus. We feel <laughs> so. Cool. It's like you know, you go down to the gospel church and it's like, praise the Lord, and like people just like having a good time and yeah. singing. You know, making a racket, and you know, so the women would play the blues. But what happened was, and this is how people like Fats, some of these piano players were influenced by the women, mm-hmm. because back in in the early part of the 20th century, where you had like, you know, you know, prohibition and what they called you know speakeasies and so forth. Well, the idea of a you know, you don't even invite the woman from the church to come and play the piano in your, your yeah. bordello, right? So <laughs> the guys would start filling in that role, you see. And so they would go to the, the female players and learn stuff, and then they would incorporate it into their style. So a lot of what we came to understand as, as that kind of playing, you know, really originated with these women you know, uh, interesting. We're doing it in the first place, and some of the performances on the, on this one record are just mind-boggling. They're just like, wow! If you if you can ever find the record, just I'll look, look it up. For it. Women's, it's a sort of a compilation of I think ten or twelve of these outstanding women that played, you know, early early blues kind of style music, but never yeah. were recognized because they were women. In those days, you know, they weren't supposed to do that kind of thing. So we've sort of got a handle on on your your influences and and your childhood, I guess, growing up playing and and some of the disappointments, I guess, in trying to get into a, a band. And um, now I do know that you ended up playing in a band called Boys Brigade that I don't know much about, but I know that um, you made one record, and I think Getty Lee produced it, right? Yeah, this is in fact true. <laughs> That's a little um, crazy. Um, well, it, you know, I'm, I had moved to Toronto uh, at a certain point, and so my early, late teens, early 20s, and I, I had this express idea of getting in a band of some kind and, and playing music live, you know, like I yeah. thought that would be the next the next big step, you see. So, um, And I ended up joining this uh, punk band called Arson. Yeah. Um, and, but it was sort of more like a glam glam punk than strictly punk, sort of incorporating more of the sort of the Bowie-esque aspect of things and the sort of more leaning towards like that sort of darker sort of German sort of quality and sort of incorporating that kind of thing into the music sort of pre, pre-new romantic, I suppose you'd kind of, kind of call it. And so I was in that group and what happened was at that time, uh, there was a radio station in Toronto called CF uh, uh, Q107. Sure. They had this like, contest you know, every year, and people would qualify, and if they got in the contest and they got chosen, you know, they got exposure, they got mm-hmm. played on the radio, and they might potentially get a record deal. So we had thought that that might be kind of a cool idea to, to record a song and put it into this um, 
Q107 contest. And I, I don't know why I did this, but we had books and studio time and our lead singer, he was a, he was a good guy, but he was, he was a bit sort of lazy. So we yeah. recorded, the, the, <laughs> we, we, we recorded the song that we needed to record and we got it done fairly quickly. And he was like, well, I've got a date with this beautiful girl. So I'm going to go off and hang out with her. And, yeah. and, uh, and, which is kind of what he was mostly interested in. It seemed at the time. <laughs> anyway, so we had this extra time, and I said to the other guys in the band, "Well, we've got another, we've got another two and a half hours. Why don't we record something?" Yeah. And and they were like, "Well, what are we going to do?" And I said, "Well, how about we record one of these songs that I've written?" And they were like, "Okay, sure, we'll do that." And so we recorded this song called Mannequin, which is this sort of fantasy song about a guy falling in love with a store dummy, <laughs> you know. <laughs> very 80s and uh, <laughs> the, the song that we recorded under the, this sort of imaginary band ended up coming like third place in the thing so suddenly we had to have a band and we had to like get a gig and <laughs> we had to learn a bunch of songs and so it was all kind of a last minute thing but from there things went fairly progressed fairly quickly you know we had a rather unique lineup of uh, three drummers Whoa. And two, uh, sort of like rock meets kind of almost like this heavy sort of African beat kind of thing. And, you yeah. know, again, very, very with the times, I should say. And, uh, and it gradually came to the attention of a few different people around the area. Um, initially, the guy who wanted to produce our record, and I'll, t- I'll tell you this, it's pretty funny. He came out to see us play and he said, look, I've, I've got some factor money to, to make a record and I'd like to produce you. And uh, we were like, we didn't know who this guy was. We didn't think he was going anywhere. And we decided not to work with him. But <laughs> it turned out at that time it was Dan Lanois. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was back in, you know, he was just kind of getting started as a producer. Yeah. You know, out of a studio down in Hamilton, you know, because he hadn't built up a name, you know, us in our arrogance thought, well, we need to work with someone with a big name, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we ended up, Ended up working with Getty Lee, you know. But uh, how did but, you know? How did that happen? You, like, did you know Getty Lee or something? <laughs> Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Well, we had our, our manager at the time worked for Rush, a guy named Howard Underlider. He was their um, lighting tech. I think he still works with them and they still work. And Howard... Um, you know, just it sort of was a natural progression that Howard would go to Anthem oh, okay. Records, which was, which was the record 
label management company and to present us. And then I guess when Getty heard about us, he thought, well, that would be kind of a fun project to get involved with. So oh. I think they were in, in between tours and whatnot, and he just, just offered to do it. And he's a super nice guy, and, you know, did a real good job. And we, we did what we did. Yeah. That was that. And that was sort of a short-lived band, I guess? We were together for about four years. We, oh, we toured okay. a fair bit, you know, yeah. um, a bunch of tours and stuff like that. But I don't know. I There was some personality issues there. And, and I think to some degree, my heart wasn't really in just being in a live rock band, like playing all the time. I, I really wanted to be in the studio. Right. So so when, when I left that group, I was sort of sitting in my uh, room with my tape little tape machines making these recordings and my at that time i started dating uh jocelyn manois dan's sister oh okay. and, um, and jocelyn had said at one point she said look these recordings that you're doing are really cool you should play them for my brother so uh, by this point dan you know had already been making a rec- couple of records with you too and you know flying high on his in his world and uh but I, and I was a bit embarrassed, but I because because you, you blew him off before. <laughs> <laughs> well, first thing he said to me when he saw me again after a few years was, "You fucked up." <laughs> <laughs> Very typical Dan sort of thing to say. But, but uh, um, anyway, so I played him these recordings, and he, he looked at me and he said, "Well, where did you do these?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Well, I was a little embarrassed." I said, "Well, I'm in my bedroom in this house I'm staying in Toronto." And he goes, that guitar sound, how did you get that guitar sound? And I said, well, it's just my like 1977 Strat, like through a Tom Schultz Rockman. And he goes, that's great. He said, that, that, I, I couldn't even, I didn't even manage to get Edge to get a guitar sound as good as that on the whole damn record I just made. Wow. <laughs> I was like, really? So I think Dan, as he always has been and always will be, is always looking with an, an ear for new talent. Yeah and people who are innovative. And so when he heard what I'd been doing, I think he just thought, well, this kid might have something to offer. So he sort of put me under his wing a little bit. And one thing led to another. And I ended up sort of getting involved with stuff that he was doing, you know, and ended up down in New Orleans working on like Neville Brothers and his solo record. Yeah. So we got to, I mean, that opens like that whole huge can of worms that it, that is like for me. So like I, you know, I, I grew up, sort of, I guess, the the generation right after you and you, what you guys were doing for me and the people that were, you know, getting into music in the late 80s, early 90s, what you guys were doing, like, was totally right up our alley and what we were interested in. And we were experimenting with, like, trying to figure out how you guys were doing stuff. And so those records meant a, a lot to me. You know, there's a whole bunch of them that you either played on or engineered. And, um, I yeah, I, I was just hoping we could talk about some of those specific uh, sessions. Um, now, like, in, your, in, in anything I've read about you, it just sort of glosses over how this whole New Orleans thing started. It just it sort of says like, well, he was in Toronto and then suddenly he was in New Orleans. Uh, like, can you el- elaborate a bit on that? Like, did Lanois already have the house there? And like, maybe just tell me how you how you ended up actually making the move to New Orleans and how that scene at Kingsway developed. Sure. Well, it was again many things like this are sort of 
you know, there's some aspect of, of conceptualization behind them. Some of them are just, they just sort of happen. Yeah. Um, and what had, what had happened was that Dan, Dan had been made, had made a record with Robbie Roberts. But anyway, Robbie had sort of, um, had uh, given Dan some advice because Dan had said he was thinking of making his own record. And Robbie said, look, you know, it's a, New Orleans might be kind of an interesting story because of the sort of the, the um, that sort of Cajun, Acadian transference from, you know, the eastern part of Canada down the coast to that part of the world. You know, when, yeah. when uh, I think Dan had been reading a book called Evangeline, it's this romantic novel about this story of lovers, you know, torn apart and then reunited through this whole you know, ethnic cleansing, I guess you could call it, which happened, you know, after the French lost to the British back in 17, I'm supposed to know this for a lot of years, you know, the planes Abraham and all that chunk. But anyway, so so apparently the Acadians were like not willing to sign, you know, pledge allegiance to the King of England. They're like, yeah, I'm not doing that. Like, yeah. Fuck that shit. Yeah. I'm young so they, so they, were forced to leave and, and, you know, they made this exodus and they ended up down in, in Louisiana because, you know, was, that was part of France. So at that time, so Dan was sort of interested in that as a subject, vague sort of piece of inspiration. Okay. So he had gone down to New Orleans and he'd rented an apartment in the French quarter and he was just kind of writing, you know, it was like going through old tapes and trying to put together stuff. And, out of the blue, he just called me up and said, look, you know, I've got this big box of cassettes and I just need somebody to come down here and kind of do like a, like a archival kind of work. Mm-hmm. Just sit with these cassettes and if you hear an interesting idea, you know, document, make a note of it. Maybe that could be the germ of a, of a, of a song. So I was like, sure, that sounds cool. So I, go to, I went down to New Orleans and we were doing that for about a week or so, just hanging out, doing that, and um, exploring ideas for his back ID record. Mm-hmm. And at one point or other, Dan said to me, "Look, there's this group here that the label got in touch with me, and they want me to make perhaps work with them. Let's go check them out, and maybe you can tell me what you think." So we go see this group play, and you know, and I remember Dan saying to me after the gig, he was, "Well, what do you think?" And I said. Oh, they're awesome! They're an amazing band, uh, but I think maybe they could use some better material. Yeah, and uh, and it turned out to be a Neville Brothers actually. Okay, and so and so Dan had this like apartment building, and we decided to do like t- two or three nights of, of of just recording. So we we knew some local people with some gear, you know, sound check music actually was. They're still around, and, and they brought in like a monitor system, and we set up. Um, I forget what format we were recording to. Some some real to real type, yeah. Not a, not a big tape machine, like it might have been a Tascam or something. Okay. And um, and did like three nights of recording with the band, and, and out of that came actually a couple of the basic tracks for what became the Yellow Moon record. We did the track called "Will the Circle Be Unbroken," yeah. Ballad Hollis Brown and we thought, okay, well, that sounds like it could be a record. So Dan was going to do this record. And as soon as he told me he was going to make this record with the Neville, I was like, 
Dan, if you make a record with them, I, I absolutely have to be involved. <laughs> you know, and he's like, yeah, but you've, what have you done? You haven't done anything like you haven't made a record yet. Don't worry. I will do it. And it will be good. Amazing. So he, you know, so, so between myself and Mark Howard, uh, who's also deeply involved in a lot of these projects, yeah. you know, we were like the little team. It was like me and Dan and Mark. And Mark was sort of be more in charge of setting up the gear and plugging in the wires. And, and then I would sort of jump behind the mixing board when we were tracking. And then, and then I would sort of have my own musical input, you know, as a musician, yeah. you know, if there was a part, I'd say, oh, let me try this or something like that. So, you know, and I ended up sort of, you know, between the three of us, we'd, we'd end up mixing the record. And so what happened was halfway through the Neville, the Yellow Moon record, which we were recording in this uh, abandoned apartment building on St. Charles Avenue in New Orleans, um, Dan, Dan said, oh, you know, Bob Dylan is in town. He's playing a gig and he's interested in working with me. So I've invited Jeez. him to come over and listen to uh, what we're doing because yeah. it turns out we'd actually recorded two, not just one, but two of his songs about the Hollis Brown track yep. and then uh, God on Our Side. Right. So Bob came over you know, with his people and he sat and listened and we played him Hollis Brown. He thought, man, that sounds pretty cool. And then when we <laughs> played him God on Our Side, he, he sat there and he goes, Oh yeah, I forgot I wrote that song. That's a pretty good one. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so, so, so then it was kind of seen like Dan was going to do this record with Bob, and of course my hand went up again. I was like, "If you're going to do this record, we need you know you and me and Mark. We we need to be in the team to do that." So we Mark found a, a sort of a small mini mansion in, in sort of the Garden District of New Orleans where we set up and made. Um, the Old Mercy record, and then we finished Dan's Akadi record. So that sort of tri- trilogy of records, right? They were they were all sort of somewhat connected. Okay, I, I thought it was a very strong. Oh my god! Yeah, thing. You know, I, I, they, they all sort of had something in common, but they're still separate records. Yeah, and right. uh, to this day, I sort of look back on those three records as having something pretty interesting going on. It wasn't a big bunch of people hanging around. It was just me, Mark, Dan, whoever was in the band. That was it. You know, there was no entourage. Right. You know, even with Bob, there's just Bob, nobody else, except his guy, Victor, that would show up. And Victor Maynard's was, for years, was Bob's kind of secondhand. It was like his minder, if you will, whatever. Wherever wherever Bob went, Victor went. But Victor wasn't even around when we were actually recording. He would just sort of drop Bob off. Bob would come in by himself. Mm-hmm. We'd work. And Bob would leave, and that was that. You know, and there was something about the focus and the intimacy, and, and just being in New Orleans and working in that way. You know, in these various locations, yeah. and sort of all led to things being done. Like I had one one thing, and this is something that. Um, to this day sort of freaks out people when I'm working with them is, you know, when I, when I went to make those records uh, with Dan, you know, he, he said, we're not going to be using headphones. We're just going to use floor monitors, like same kind of wedges that you do use on a live. I do that gig. too. I love doing we, that. We had those. In the, yeah. And, and that, that was just that way, you know, something would happen in the performance that was far more, 
I don't know, it just felt like real, you know, like there's something yeah. real going on as opposed to just people sort of pretending to do what they'd practiced a bunch of times beforehand. Right, right. You know, so, so I guess that at that time was pretty unusual. I mean, now it's less, less uncommon. And, but, you know, actually, when you look back, um, when, the, for example, a lot of records in the 60s, up until about 64, 65. There were no headphones. 66. They didn't use headphones. I mean, yep. you see pictures of the Beatles, and they'll be in the studio with what they call the big white elephant. That's big right. white speaker. And when they went to do backing vocals, they just set the speaker at a certain distance, put the mics out of phase with it, and they and they could, they're singing, you know, to the room, yeah, hearing themselves and yeah. hearing each other. And and you listen to the Beatles and you think, well, wow, they, their harmonies are so great and they're so tight and they're so, you know, way before you know auto tune and all that junk. Well, that's because they were singing in a way that, you know, made it easier to, to communicate and hear each other and so forth. And Not on headphones, singing is like a whole different trip altogether. It makes people sing way differently. That's why I love doing what you're talking about. And there's so many things, like if you look on the internet about like recording with, with a monitor as opposed to a head, headphones, there's like 9 million people chiming in about how how shitty it's going to sound or how many problems are going to be uh brought up with phasing or whatever but it's actually like it's pretty easy like it really works really well really quickly and makes people sing in a totally different way than they would with headphones on and for, so for me like i that really works well because of the way people work these days you know they're so used to you know they'll they'll use these like super hi-fi microphones that you know you could be halfway down the other end of the football field and hear someone fart, you know, <laughs> and, and they'll be using, you know, they'll be impressing the, the vocal while they're singing and then they've got auto tune and all this junk. So, you know, put, if you think about that going on while you've got a speaker, but on the other hand, if you're using a Bayer 88 mic, handheld microphone or a 57 or something like that yeah. or a 58, you know, and you're not using all that other junk, then it's not a problem at all. And yeah, you get a little bit of what's coming through the speaker, but guess what? That kind of adds you know, to the vibe. Sort of, it, it, it's precisely, you know, it just becomes a, part like a of reverb. the sound of the record. Yeah. You know, it just becomes part of the ambience of the record and you end up with this sort of sense of depth. And this is something, again, that I was always interested in uh, as, as an engineer and a mixer was, you know, it seems that for many people when they're when they're working, they're sort of thinking of a like left right spectrum or now maybe it's five point one or whatever, but you know, it's it's a very sort of side to side kind of perspective as opposed to like yeah. the sense of depth that you get when you hear I was really struck eight years ago the first time I ever listened to Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys seriously and I realized the, the bloody records in mono. I know, but it sounds, but it sounds really deep, and it's because even from basic, simple point of view, like the way that, that Brian Wilson would set up the guys in the group when they're singing, he didn't send them up around a circle. He'd have them in a line, yeah. In front, like the, whoever needed to be the most dominant and next would be the closest, and then he put the t somebody behind him doing the second part, which would be a little more, and he would literally mix. You know, by physically moving people in the room, on, by just placing the people, yeah, on on the microphone, and that's so that's a, and, that's and a commitment. That would just go to one track, yeah. And that's to me, and, yeah. You know, you know, we Amazing. don't need to remix. We don't need to recreate that later. You know, and that's say, right. oh, it's not 
right. It's, it's not how it sounded when we were recording it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's exactly how it was. You know what I mean? And it sort of all goes back to some fundamental aspects of, of, of recording that I learned from Dan, and Dan had probably learned from Brian Eno, you know, where, um, and it sort of comes into a, from Zen philosophy, really, is that if you say to yourself, well, your weaknesses can be your strengths, you know? Uh-huh. In other words, you know, something that you, everyone might perceive as something that's a negative, if you if you make that your positive and then build on that, you might actually come up with something really interesting. Right. You know? And I don't know if you remember, but Brian Eno had, at one point back in the late 70s, had come up with this, uh, this uh, what are they called? Um, the cards? Uh, yeah, yeah, the cards. So you know, if you're stuck and you're working, and yeah, you, I've got you, I've got a set right in front of me right here. <laughs> oblique strategies. Oblique you know, strategies. You, yeah. where you, you know, you're like, what am I going to do here? And you pick up the card and says, take a walk. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> or my my other favorite one was um, identify the most irritating aspect and amplify it. And turn it and up. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay, so maybe you know you've done a recording and and for whatever reason. You know, the drummer was beating the crap out of the fucking cymbals. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you're going to mix and you're just like, oh my God, what, that, what am I going to do? I'm going to use gates. Am I going to EQ this out? I mean, and instead of sort of fighting it, you think, what if I up. made the cymbals? What if I just took the cymbals as my cue and thought, well, what can I do to enhance that and make that more interesting <laughs> rather yeah. than trying to make the micro... And this is where I get a little... I rate, you know, this whole sort of idea of micromanagement of, of, of sound, you know, and because of the way technology has evolved, it's like people, they can just infinitely micromanage every aspect of a recording, you know, yeah. whereas, you know, if you're sort of stuck with something because the person was singing on head, on, on floor monitor, so you've got a certain thing going on, well, you just kind of have to live with it, man. And yeah, that's man. that. So with that in mind, how about using that as your guide to go somewhere with it as opposed to struggling away and thinking, oh, we have to do this all over again? Because maybe what the the one thing you did get out of that person singing on the, on the monitor was a great performance, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like a really emotional, connected musical performance. Right. You know, and, and after all, it's music, right? It's all music and everything, in my opinion... Like when someone says that sounds very musical to me, that means something to me. Right. Right. If someone starts talking about, well, you know, the, uh, the uh, frequency response and the whole blah, blah, and I'm like, <laughs> you're, sl- okay, you're you're sleeping. <laughs> no, I, I don't care. <laughs> I'm not interested yeah. in bits and how many track counts you're going to have and how many, what is 32 bit or 64, I just, whatever. It's like, whatever works. You know, yeah. Whatever helps me get a great performance. And capture something interesting is, is all I'm ever interested in. I like it. And uh, that's, that's something I, I don't think I can really change. I had that experience last year with a guy who made a record, this guy named Stephen Clare. It's a really good album, by the way. Um, and at first, I thought, you know, in headphones, he always sounded a bit restricted. You know, like he, I'd heard him singing live in the, in the in rehearsal space, and I was like, yeah, he's really getting into it, you know. Then when when we were recording and the lights on, red lights on, you know, he's he's in the headphones and he's like, I could feel he he wasn't singing like 
hundred percent, you know? Yeah. I yeah. Thinking, even, why don't we just try, I'll just turn on the, the studio speakers and sing, try singing to the monitors. And say, he was kind of wigged out, you know, and he was like, didn't want to do it. But eventually I managed to get him to do it and he did it and he said, okay, well now, now we've done that. Let me sing it again, you know, in the headphones. So he sang a few more takes. Then we're going back through the takes and we're listening. And, you know, I put the first take where he's in the headphones. And, ah, that's not so good in the second. And then I put the, I didn't tell him, but I put the, the one up that he'd sang to the speakers. And he goes, oh, that one sounds pretty good. And then <laughs> I played the next one. He goes, ah, that one's not. And, he go, and I said, well, guess what? The one that you thought had the most to it that you liked was the one that you sang to the speakers. And I was like, oh, okay. So from there on in, you know, that's what we did. Like Amy Lou Harris is a bit like that. She mm-hmm. she really loves headphones. She likes to feel like she's inside the thing, and, and that's fair enough. And mm-hmm. we'll work that way if we have to. You know, it's that's cool. But, and then the only thing, for example, on Oh Mercy that would ever get overdubbed would be because Bob's constantly reworking his lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, he. he He'd get a, he'd come back in the next day and say, "Oh, I've got a better phrase for this line, or even a just better word." So we'd have to like punch in just that one. Oh, really? Because when we, because you know, we were recording, and he'd be playing his guitar and singing. Basically, you'd always record the person singing and playing. Like I'd always insist, like make sure when you're singing, you're playing an instrument. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because then if we have to go punch it in later, you know, then we'll have that match up. So. So any given vocal take would always have an accompanying acoustic guitar track to it. Right. Yeah. So when you did a punch in, you had to punch in Both. not just the acoustic, uh, the vocal, but the accompanying because it would have a bit of leakage in it. And, yeah. You know what I mean? Was Bob pretty amenable to your your guys's sonic vision and experimentation, or was he picky at all, or directive, or was he just like going with the flow and digging it? For the most part, he was into. Um, I mean. It was kind of funny because at one point, Dan, I, I distinctly remember Dan saying to Bob, so Bob, what do you think about our work of recording? You know, this sort of like everybody in the room together. Bob said, yeah, big deal. Everybody was doing that back in the 60s, you know? Like, <laughs> I mean, we used to do that back in, you know. So, I don't, again, it was an, it's, not a, it's not a new concept. I mean, right, yeah, he'd a, done a it before. A lot of people used to record like that, but then as technology progressed and you get more isolated and you have more tracks, you know, people start sticking each other in booths and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, you know what? Some amazing records have been done that way. Yeah, sure. I'm not knocking them. You know, there's no, there's no what right, wrong way to make a great piece of work. I mean, yeah. whatever works for the individual and you know, that still applies even for today. Like I've heard incredible recordings that were done on someone's like iPhone, you know, just right. using garage band, you know? Yeah. So it doesn't matter to me, you know, what the technology is, you know, it's more about that you got a good idea, you know, but, uh, but other than that, the only time I remember at one point, Bob got a little, uh, stressed out about the fact that, um, I, I don't mind talking about this because he actually has a whole chapter in his book Chronicles about that record. Right. And he, he actually mentions some of this stuff. So it's, it's not like I'm saying something off the record that I'm not supposed to say, but he, 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 um, he got a little worried because we weren't, not all the tracks were recorded with a full band. Mm-hmm. And, and for him, that was kind of bizarre. Like some of the tracks are just, um, like an 808 right. box, just, just the bass drum sort of keeping this pulse. And then just, 
Bob on, you know, Dan was mostly playing like a, an old national mm-hmm. um, guitar on that record through a delay, and Bob was just playing acoustic guitar, and sometimes I'd be playing just bass, you know, while we were tracking, and then we'd just add a few more things to it, and that would be that. But for some reason, Bob thought that that didn't really sound like a record. He, he literally said at one point, yeah, it sounds like a demo, you know? <laughs> like, right. That was... I kind of upset Dan a little bit when he heard that because, you know, Dan was like, you know, a bit offended by yeah, being yeah. told that this fine piece of work was sounded like a demo. <laughs> All right, that was part one of my conversation with Malcolm Byrne. Hope you enjoyed it. Part two will be coming out next week. That's one week from today. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get it, and we'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.